it's something that, I, for example, I'm not an art expert. I'm knowledgeable in the field and I've learned a lot by being working in it. I would call myself more of an art market expert in some ways. And I understand how art sells better than you know, the, de the intricate details of the art itself. But being around it very often is something that you, you, you have to really appreciate because it is, it is even things that are challenging and, you know, not uh, are always in enjoyable to be around and the experience you get from. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got Joe Charalamos. Joe, I'm sure I messed your last name up. Tell us how to spell it. Tell us how to pronounce it correctly. It's Charalamos. You are spot on. <laughs> so, um, director at, you know, president, founding partner, TPC Art Finance. Tell people what that is. Sure. Um... So firstly, thank you for having me with you today. Pleasure to be here. TPC Art Finance is a specialty finance company that makes loans to high net worth individuals secured by their fine art as collateral. We typically work with real estate investors, private equity sponsors, and general art collectors who need liquidity for various reasons and can tap into their collection to uh, obtain a loan. Fun business. I'm an art school dropout and, and I, I love the art world. I love parts of the art world. I'll say that. How did you get into this? Good question. So to go back to my early career after college back in the UK, I joined a startup that was in its very early stages um, that was planning to revolutionize the pawnbroker model that exists where people, pe the company would allow people to borrow money against their luxury assets like jewelry, watches, classic cars and art. But they were doing it in a, on a, with a tech platform that allowed people to send their items in rather than ha having to go to a traditional pawnbroker. I, I thought this model was really interesting. So I joined this company in 2000 and I believe 11. I was given at the time, it was a venture backed company and I was given the opportunity to help expand the company to the New York market. I was, it was, the company had been around for about two years at that point, maybe three. They'd seen growth in the UK. So I was tasked with researching the market in New York to, to, to find out if it was a viable opportunity. Um, it was a great opportunity for me as an individual to do this. I mean, it was quite a lot of responsibility to do it. And after doing our research, we found that actually it would be a very viable opportunity that we should pursue. So myself and a few other people, we came over, I think there was three of us. We, we started the business in New York from the ground up. And so it was effectively lending money to private individuals against their luxury assets. Part of that that group was art. So I was serving, I, my, my job was the vice president of business development in that, in that role. And that was really sourcing new clients and partnerships in the market. Over time, I realized that there was a huge demand for art loans above the 250,000 mark and below the $10 million range. So really the upper middle market. And what I found was that a lot of the private banks were doing loans above $10 million. There were a few other lenders out there focusing on loans above $5 million. But there was no one really serving that, <clears throat> that market of $250,000 to $5 or $10 million, which was a much bigger market than what was currently being served. So I noticed this. And during that time in that role, 
I met a company called Three Point Capital. They were a film finance business. They were really interested in the art lending space. They, they had the back office staff already. They had the access to capital. So it'd be quite an easy marriage with some, to bring somebody in that has expertise and contacts to create a, a new art lending business. So that, that idea was discussed over a number of years. And then eventually we decided to come together and set up TPC Art Finance to serve that part of the market that we thought wasn't currently being served well. Okay, so I had a friend and acquaintance yesterday told me that they bought a $600,000 piece of art last month, okay? If, if they wanted to get a loan against that at some point, what does that process look like with you guys? Yeah, good question. So part of what we've done with TPC Art Finance was to try and make the entire process as simple and as accessible as possible for people to get a loan, get a loan against their art. So the way that it typically works is there's four, well, there's three stages, really. Uh, the first stage is that the uh, client would approach us with what they need and what artwork they have. And from there, we would assess that and decide if we can help or not. And if we can help, we'd put together the terms. From there, we would then go to the next stage, which is the due diligence stage. So we would appraise the artwork, do a conditional report, and then do our due diligence on the, on the client themselves. Provided that all checks out, we then go to the final stage, uh, which is the contracts, the logistics of moving the artwork into storage, and then closing the loan and funding it. Yeah. So all in all, that takes about two to three weeks. I mean, we can do faster than that if need be, but we, we, we really try and make it as simple as possible throughout the process. Yeah. And and the the capital that you're lending out, is this like, do you guys raise a fund? Are you going to other financial institutions? So we're a good question. We're actually a balance sheet lender. So we have a credit line with a bank that we work with, and then we fund the fund the loans from our balance sheet with the credit line and our own equity. Okay. And what does say, you know, a lot of people will be familiar with the, the appraisal process in say real estate, like their home. What does the appraisal process look like for high-end art? That's a great question. I think a lot of people don't quite know how the appraisal process is for artwork. It's a unique asset class and it's appraised typically by experts that have been working in the field for a very long time. And the most common way to appraise artwork is to use comparable sales results from auctions. So unlike, an, unlike real estate, where you might appraise real estate using the income model, which would, which would look at how much that property would generate in income, art doesn't generate income so you, the only way to do it really is to look at how similar works have sold for recently at auction and make an assessment based on where your piece fits in alongside the recent sales result and a connoisseur would then come up with a value of what that piece is worth how much does that when you think of having to collect on that at some point how how does how do you ensure that you actually get the value of the collateral if you had to collect? Is it just make sure you're you're taking the time and using the right auction houses or what, what does that look like for protecting your downside? Yeah, yeah, so fortunately we very rarely have to sell artwork, but in this situation where we do, we would look at the market and have the work reappraised. And then most cases we would go to an auction house and there's three major auction houses and then some, some other regional auction houses. And you would look at the work and decide 
where that piece would do best, you know, sell for the best price. And as a lender, we ha- we put a big emphasis on trying to get the very best price for for the artwork in a default situation. And typically, we have the ability to look at various uh, various routes. So we try and negotiate the best deal for the client. Um, we also look at would a private sale benefit the client more than a, an auction? And we go through that process and make the best assessment based on that. Yeah. So what's the trick? What are some of the principles to being successful in uh, in art finance? Great question. One of the things that we found, so we've been in business for about four years now. One of the things we noticed was that there was an element of longevity. And by that, I mean, being in business for a certain amount of time where clients know that you're no longer an overnight business, but actually here to stay. You know, I've been in the business for a very long time, over over 12 years now. And even some clients that I knew from back in the day, I think still wanted to see that we're going to be in business for, you know, a substantial amount of time to mitigate their own risk. So I think one thing I've learned is that you do have, if you start a business in general, particularly one that requires a lot of trust and strong relationships with your client, you do have to realize that it might, it's not going to be an overnight success, but something that builds after a few years of being in business and showing everyone that you are there. Yeah. When, when it comes to business development for something like this, how do you get the word out? So the, the majority of the business that we do comes by referral and word of mouth. We typically work with private banks, other lenders, art dealers, really anyone that works with high net worth individuals or art collectors is a potential referral source for us. And it's really just about generating very good relationships, showing that we are a trustworthy, trustworthy enterprise. I think sometimes as well, one of the best things you can do is if a client has an advisor, one thing that we've always put a big emphasis on is great customer service. So when an advisor sees that you've treated their client really well, there's a very high chance that they'll talk about you in a positive light to other clients. So we've seen a lot of referrals from, from current clients, from our current clients' lawyers, our current clients' accountants, anyone that, that they've worked with that's also interacted with us. And just to add to that, you know, I think one of the keys to our success has been that the the, the company that we partner with, Three Point Capital, my partners that uh, I work with, they've always put, put a big emphasis on a great client experience uh, and just generally treating clients with respect and going the extra mile. We've come to find that going the extra extra mile doesn't require all that much, but it really does make the difference. So we really try to go the extra mile, be very responsive and approachable in the way we work with every client that we meet with the idea that at some point they could be a potential client in the future or a referral. referral. What are some examples of that? What does going the extra mile look like in your industry? You know, I think for us, when a client that we work with needs money, it's typically for some kind of opportunity. So they, they often need the money fairly quickly. So we've found that being responsive is, is really important. So always responding very quickly to a client when they need something, trying to get the loans wrapped up as quickly as possible. Generally, just being open and available has, is, to me, is, is the extra mile. I think generating great relationships where people can call you in the good times and in difficult situations where you've got that dialogue where you can communicate on those situations, being ahead of, just generally assisting them. I think a lot of the people that we work with, sure, we make a loan to them, but they'll come to us with 
requests for other things, they'll say, you know, do you know an, a good art insurance company? I'm looking to sell this work. Do you know anyone? And always being able to guide them in the right way. Small things, I think small things like that make a huge difference. And by doing that, it really sets you apart. Yeah. Well, when you think about, again, I, you know, we're, we have a real estate fund. So I, I keep comparing things in my head to real estate, right? I don't know what the right term is for your industry, but how much are you loaning against an appraised value? What's your like loan to value type of ratio? Like what's the range that someone would typically be able to secure from you? So we typically lend up to 50% of the loan, sorry, of the collateral value. In COVID times, I think we, we brought that back to more like 45% to assess how the market reacted. But we typically lend out a 45 to 50% loan to value. Yeah. Is that, generally speaking, sorry, go ahead. Is that kind of industry standard or what's the range in the industry? I think you'd see the, the range in the industry being 30 to 50. It's not too often that you would go above 50%. And I think the reason for that is probably the variance uh, it, that comes with appraised artwork appraisals. Unlike, again, unlike real estate, where you've got this income model, as well as other factors you can come and take into consideration, art is quite subjective. So you may have two paintings that are from the same year, the same artist, same size, but a very small difference could have a big impact on value. So it's important to have appraisers that you trust that, that know the market. But even then, even with the most trusted appraisers, there are small variances that can have an impact on value. And I think that's why you get the sort of slightly lower loan to values in art finance than say traditional real estate financing, which is probably more like you know 80 or 90% depending on the type of loan. Yeah, that that is an interesting question for me because, you know, that that subjectivity could be so intense, right? And because it doesn't have an income model, you know, there's no what Warren Buffett would call intrinsic value. You know, there's no value as a function of its cash flow stream since there is no cash flow stream. So, and you have so much writing on was this a good appraisal, right? What are what are the principles for you to to be able to trust an appraiser? Sure. I to trust, so the, the, the way that we work is we typically do an internal assessment and hire an appraiser. And generally, you want the two, the two numbers to generally align in, you know, to, to some extent. When we work with appraisers, like many parts of the art business, not just the art lending business, trust is a huge part of it. So being in the business for a very long time and looking at their experience in the art business and their exposure to the different kinds of artworks that they're appraising is important to us and then also general reputation i think each art genre or category if you will, if you will for example whether you're looking at a 19th century american painting modern and contemporary you want to hire an appraiser that's a leading expert and a recognized expert in that field and that's generally who we work with so you're, you're dealing with people that have been exposed to a lot of the art in various um, settings so they may have had experience selling artwork in a gallery then to an auction house, and then they may have spent 25 years appraising artwork where they're seeing new objects every day. And that kind of connoisseurship that builds up over time is really what we consider as valuable. So when, when we get a new artwork, one of the questions is, a, a new artwork to look at, one of the questions is who would be the best appraiser for this? And of course, we have, we have a Rolodex of appraisers that, we work with, that we've worked with, with in the past. And so far, I think it's worked out quite well. Yeah. Well, um, 
in I mean, it's an interesting model. I, I frankly haven't had much exposure to in the past. What what are the factors that change what type of an interest rate that you would offer? Great question. So the interest rate, rate that we charge really depends on the size and then uh, a few other factors that we take into consideration. So if a client does want to hire loan to value, we may we may charge a higher rate. And also the the strength of the artwork. Some artwork is inherently riskier than others. And that may be from the exposure that they've had in the auction market and how many data points there are in that. And so whilst we are open to lending against riskier works, there may we may mitigate that risk with a, with a higher rate. But typically the rates range from the high single digits to the very low double digits. And what we always have to, you have to remember with the, the lending that we do, it, it's in some ways similar to bridge lending or you know other kinds of specialty loans where you're not doing a deep dive into the client's financials. You're, you're looking at the artwork, you're looking at the, the borrower's profile, but not, but not their you know, net worth and their cash flow. That allows us to do loans very quickly. It just means that there's a, a riskier component to it, which sort of dictates the rate. And is also, you know, why those loan to values are in that 30 to 50 range, right? Correct. If Correct. If it's primarily the collateral that, that's the underwriting, right? Yeah, I think, you know, ultimately you want to just make sure you are able to sell the artwork in a, in a relatively short time frame in a default scenario. You know, we don't do fire sales. We want to get the best price, but typically... A relatively short time frame is what you'd consider the time frame of an auction sale. So the auction might be in three months or four months. You know, I think that kind of time frame is what we want. Uh, and the loan to value of forty-five or fifty percent will generally make sure you're you're covered in that situation. Yeah. Well, what are some of the rookie mistakes that people make when they try to get into this industry? That's a great question. I think if you look at the last ten years, there's been many companies that have tried to get into it and left relatively quickly and I think that is because they've there's a there's a few things one I think a lot of people come into it without the art knowledge and don't necessarily recognize that certain artworks you should steer clear from and certain artworks you shouldn't and each art each artist has their own market it's not one individual art market it's Andy Warhol has Andy the Andy Warhol market so and so on and so forth. So each artist has their own unique things to take into, into consideration when doing a loan. And I think without that sort of understanding of the details that go into it, I think a lot of lenders may have been more surprised about the intricacies of lending against art without the knowledge. So I think that's one thing. And then, of course, it's a, a highly relational business. So I think knowing the various people in the industry and being trusted by them is how you acquire clients and coming into it without that sort of that, that, that network makes it quite difficult to, to, to get new clients. So I think it's those two knowledge and network that, that make it a difficult business for, for new entrants. Yeah. So for people who are trying to understand that this idea of every, every artist having its own market and, you know, arts, you know, Art can be a more fun thing to hold than, say, land or gold or something else that doesn't that doesn't cash flow, right? <laughs> if that's something people are looking for in their portfolio. So, 
what's an example of what's an example of an artist that that would have a great market that maybe not everybody would realize you know like Andy Warhol people probably guess oh yeah there's there's a big market for that but who's an example of another artist that people may not realize has kind of a great market well that's a, a great question you know i often see the artists that have done well when you know a year or two they weren't necessarily that popular. It's a very good, very good question. I think what you're seeing is a shift in younger collectors, perhaps, that are interested in the more contemporary artworks that that have that speculative angle where the prices can rise dramatically in a short space of time. And you're finding a, a new collector, for example, that would buy these works more so than, say, more seasoned collectors that focus on other genres that are not quite as not quite as uh, volatile, if you will. So I think we're seeing a lot of new artists that are getting a lot more attention and then seeing huge rise, huge changes in values in a very short space of time. Um, that sort of speculative investor. I don't have any specific artists for you. If you know artists that you might make a, a huge win on. I think really if you want to buy art, it you should buy it because you like it and you put, probably shouldn't expect to get the money out of it very quickly if you do need to liquidate. So I think it really is a passion asset that you should buy when you have that liquidity on hand to buy art rather than buying it purely for an investment. Yeah. You know, a really interesting interview uh, a a few weeks back with Mike Steeb, who is the CEO of artsy.net. Have you heard of this site? Yeah. Yeah. When you think about, you know, how many people didn't think million dollar paintings would be being sold online in the past, and yet they're doing it. What are the kind of what kind of the kind of changes in the art world do you see coming that maybe people who aren't in it every day might not see? I think the internet in general has caused a, a really huge shift. And then COVID, you know, I think when COVID first hit, for example, a lot of people are thinking, what will happen if there's no auctions? How will we know? how strong the market is because they are that's the main indicator that was the biggest fear and maybe will will people even be buying art during covid and i think a lot of people in the industry were pleasantly surprised to find that people were buying art still the auction houses adapted and were able to do sales of very valuable art online or with with a, a makeshift you know i guess virtual platform and I think those kinds of changes are really what made it quite exciting to know that an, an industry that's been so rigid for such a long time in some ways and hasn't changed so much is now completely, has now completely adapted to, to the technology age. And I think when, when COVID ends and whenever that may be, I think you'll see that the market will incorporate the tech angle a lot more than what it previously did. And I think that's a really exciting thing because people are buying art online for very, very large numbers. And sometimes those artworks haven't even been seen. It's just they're willing to raise the paddle at a virtual auction. And that was that was something that I was quite excited to be part of and see how it's changing things, I think. Yeah. What do you feel like are some of the implications of that? I think that ultimately art is a physical object that a passion asset that people want to enjoy so as much as things tr- uh, change hands and sell for large figures ultimately people do want to be out there looking at art in in person so the implication i think is that it can in some ways take away from the enjoyment of art 
on the other hand, I think you can still enjoy art online. I think I think the 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 big art fairs were able to adapt as well and do art fairs online, and that worked in some ways. It 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 it's not a substitute for the real thing, but it worked. But I think ultimately, being in front of an artwork is an experience that you can't entirely replicate online. So I think whilst it's great that the tech has been incorporated. I think people still do want to go out and experience it firsthand. Yeah. You know, I was I was completely in love with Salvador Dali surrealism in art school. And I think I think I think I've never had that experience that you're just describing happen as much as when I dropped out of art school to become an entrepreneur. <laughs> Training for this business we were starting was in Tampa, Florida. And so I got to go down to the Salvador Dali Museum and see these paintings I'd seen hundreds of times in the art books of the library or, you know, the internet wasn't quite as, wasn't quite as big 20 years ago, but, but it was there. Right. And I'd printed these off and then like realizing that's an 18 foot tall painting and I've never seen it bigger than, you know, 12 inches. Right. Absolutely. That was, that was like the first, like massively like, wow, this is so different when I thought I was so familiar, you know? No, I totally agree. I mean, we receive a lot of the artwork information in sort of small thumbnails and it might have the dimensions below it, but you don't quite understand how big some of these things are until you're in front of it. And, you know, art has texture and it has colors that you can't get on a screen all the time. And witnessing that is, uh, you know, it's probably one of the more fun parts of my job too, you know, being able to enjoy it a client's collection when they're showing it to me and describing it and experiencing why they brought it and why they wanted to look into it more. You know, that's probably the sort of perk of my job in some ways. Yeah. You know, I think about like as a kid, you know, teenager, twenties going to concerts and, you know, they've got multiple bands or you're to, you're to a festival sometime. And it's like, I mean, I saw Silverchair in person back in the late nineties. Right. And my friends <laughs> liked him a lot. And I was, I was like, yeah, they're okay. And then I saw him live and I was, I've been a Silverchair fan for 23 years since or 24 years since <laughs> then. Cause it was such yep. a different experience than ever came through on the CDs back then. Right. And absolutely, my like, you know, being in the finance world, you, you end up traveling a lot when you're raising money for investment funds and things like this. Right. And kind of my, I'm a, kind of an efficiency nerd. So I'm like, I book a breakfast, a morning meeting, a lunch, an afternoon meeting, a dinner, then an after dinner meeting usually, right? If I'm leaving my wife and four <laughs> kids, we're going to get our money's worth and I'm going to get back home. And I'm sure uh, they love that. Yeah. my indulgence is I, I typically will always have reserved time to go see whatever the, you know, the, the most important or the most interesting gallery or uh, museum is in, you know, whatever city I'm in or whatever country I'm in. And it's been a very similar experience of, you know, being able to go to these different countries and go to these in- incredible homes of art and yeah. completely fall in love with paintings or, or just seeing entire genres of paintings that I just thought were boring in the books. And we're just, I don't know, they just didn't do it for me. And then you, you're there in the presence and it's like, uh, never mind, I love this stuff, you know? Right, right. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly it. It's, it's something that I, for example, I'm not an art expert. I'm knowledgeable in the field and I've learned a lot by being, working in it. I would call myself more of an art market expert in some ways. And I understand how art sells better than, you know, the de- the intricate details of the art itself. But being around it very often is something that you you, you have to really appreciate because it is, it is 
even things that are challenging and you know not uh, are always in, enjoyable to be around any experience you get from it so yeah uh, so part from a part of the interesting interesting part of the business is working with people that are passionate about art as well i think when we work with our i've i've yet to work with a client that doesn't love the art they own and talking about it and why they bought it when they bought it that's that's great that's a, a that's a really fun thing to be part of and understanding why they're looking to borrow money to buy a new artwork that they like and and being part of that process you know that that to me is 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 a really enjoyable part of it yeah no kidding i i've been in businesses before where people are doing the deal for the money it's not it's not for the love of the commodity or the or, you know or the project it's it's purely about what shows up on the excel spreadsheet and it probably makes it more fun to do it that way i think our more speculative really do love the art they're buying and i think that they would be happy to own the artwork for a long time you know i think the thrill of 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 being the one that i think it's more a case of being the one that chose the artists because they know which ones are going to be successful is probably the biggest thrill they get but all of them really love the art and that's that's the best part of it yeah although i can see how that could get dangerous when the emotions <laughs> when you're when you claim you're doing more of a financial decision but the over the emotions override it right. imagine that can well, get away yeah. from certain folks <laughs> well i mean buying art at auction is a thrilling experience so i can imagine that i can imagine that gets quite addictive yeah. So who's an artist or who are a couple of artists that you've really grown appreciation for that maybe you, you wouldn't have otherwise? Anybody come yeah, to there's mind? some there's some newer artists that I really like that have done really well at auction. One of which is Nicholas Party. He creates sort of surrealist art that it's just you've got to see it to be part of it and it I it's bright colors, it's you know, new sort of whimsical worlds and it's it enjoyable to look at. Oh um, yeah, this is fun. It, yeah, it is fun, and it's it's big, as you say. Like the big artworks are always quite imposing. And then I've come to appreciate modern artists, the hard edge artists like Joseph Albers, who to people that aren't into artwork themselves may not really appreciate, but being around it and understanding why it's important to me is another interesting one. And I, I can see by see from your face that it doesn't quite do it for you. <laughs> well, I will say this: I'm probably you know, I think I have much more of a value on high aesthetic art that requires much more craftsmanship to, to accomplish. What I admire the most about people who can sell, you know, three green squares on top of each other for large amounts of money is the sales skills. I mean, the, the storytelling skills of those gallery owners and those artists, like the, look, is an Apple real? You know, is an Apple Watch really worth that much more than another digital watch? I'm I'm gonna say, maybe it's worth more, but probably not as much more as we pay for it, right? But the right, whole right. environment and like how it makes us feel to be like the first one of our friends to have gotten the Apple Watch is really what they're selling right. as much as the the thing itself. And so I, I think, yeah, I, I think I see what you're saying, and um, I totally I appreciate it. You know, you it takes a lot of in some ways, courage to, <laughs> to to do that and present it as as art, and it's still the test of time. And it's clearly people appreciate it, and it has its place in art history. But I understand what you're saying. At, at the very moment, it requires quite a lot of conviction to to sell. And I, I mean, my my absolute 
highest esteem is for the people who can sell a, a blank white square or a blank black square for, for large right. amounts of money, right? Like the, yeah. that is the that is yeah. the ultimate in marketing that you can create yeah, a know, demand, <laughs> right? For that, yeah. and and hey, like you know, I I'm an American born abroad, so my my dad's American, but I was born in Canada. And, you know, my dad used to say things, we, we'd whine as kids and say, oh, that's not fair. And my dad said, well, you're an American. Life's not fair for Americans, right? <laughs> but the other thing that he would say is, like, another thing from that is I tell people, like, hey, you're an American. You can have anything you can negotiate, right? <laughs> there's, no, there's no rules on how much you can sell a white square for. Like, if you can get the money, you're allowed to keep it. Right. Yeah. No. I, that's that's I'm, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you have to be more diplomatic than me because of the world you're in. But um. right. No. I, I think I think those those things like the um, blank white squares and and other things they 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 work because they were contextual in that very given time. Um, I don't part of a can, movement. Part of a it's yeah, part of a storyline. So yeah, and I think I think it sort of it's the relevance in that time that made it valuable rather than its sales skills alone. Well, it's the same thing with films, right? Like I could show my kids parodies from like the early nineties and it wouldn't do it for them because they, they don't get the jokes. They don't, they don't have the context. It's not, it's not going to be that funny to them. Right. Because they're they're missing so much. (laughs) I know. Right. No, I know exactly what you mean. So I think a lot of art does require the understanding of, the history of the art to really appreciate it and there is i think there is that that component to art collecting that once you've sort of understood it as a general a general sort of idea and the history behind it in, in some ways it's like wine and understanding why certain wines are more valuable than others and once you once you bite the bug then it will start to make more sense and then when you look at things on a standalone basis it's not quite as interesting maybe Sure. Well, what's something else about succeeding in your space that maybe people on the outside wouldn't automatically understand? I would say that from a business perspective, it's it's hard to put a value on the on relationships. I mean, without the good relationships and trust build up over time, I would say that this this business is virtually impossible. So reputation in the in the industry, contacts and a good network is really really the most defining fact i think as you as you go on and you you build these solid relationships they are really what define you and then you can you can advertise as much as you'd like but without without people saying oh i've met i i know joe charalambas he's trustworthy uh, he's worked with other clients of mine it will be very hard to to build this relationship so it has been a slow growth business for the first few years really Cement, not necessarily a slow growth in a bad way, but there was a there was a, a, a side of the, the community that said that thought you know let's see if they're going to be around in a few years before we work with them. So that's kind of and then our, having seen that that was a that was what made us uh, grow, I suppose, more rapidly. Sure. So when you didn't have as much network as you was like as you would have liked. And you're, you were trying to grow that network. And again, you're in, you know, you're in a world that, that is, is not actively looking for new friends. I've got plenty of people trying to become friends with them. Right. What, what were some of the techniques that worked? What were some of the, you know, 
what were the kind of events that you would intentionally go to or how did you build that network when it, when it wasn't as strong as you would have liked? Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't think it was about necessarily, necessarily the specific events. I think like many businesses, if you look really at the, the network that you regularly work with that, re that regularly refer you clients or to, or so on, it's probably a lot smaller than you think. So I think it's much more of a, much more of a quality rather than quantity situation by getting to know a smaller group very well is much better than getting to know a big group not very well on the surface so for us i think just just really close relationships with some key players has really been you know what made us successful i don't think it's i think you could go to events every day and and get nothing out of it and you could meet the right person and speak to them regularly and you can do very well out of it so i think it's it really is a it, it's close relationships over quantity, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So what's been one of your principles that's worked for creating closer relationships that maybe you don't see everyone else do? I think for me, it's really always been about trust. I think I've really put an emphasis on letting people know that if they send a client to us, that they've probably spent many years nurturing themselves that they're in safe hands and ensuring that people know that they're in safe hands. So I've always put a huge emphasis on that. And I think if you can generate that kind of trust, which takes time to build, I think you'll be very successful in anything that you do. Yeah, that's great. Well, if people want to learn more about you, where are the best places and the website to check out? And Yeah, please check out the website. My email's on there. I'm always open to answering questions or taking calls if you're interested in learning more. And, and yeah. Uh, and the website people is tpcaf.us. That's correct. Dot US. Maybe, maybe one to close on here is what's one of the best pieces of advice you ever received? I think from an old manager, he said, always, oh, I'm trying to think of the actual phrasing of it, which is um, leaving me right now, but it's always follow up with what you promise, even if it's small. Even if it's said that you'd that you would, you know, get back to somebody on this day, make sure you do it. That's great. I, I think that's been a, a key thing for me. That's great. Anything else you want to leave with? I think we covered quite a lot today. I really enjoyed it. I think a lot of people take art finance are quite interested in art finance as a service and have their own questions. So I think if anyone does have questions, feel free to reach out. That's great. Well, thanks for making time to come on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. See ya. Yeah.